right, this is Todd Atkins, and this is another episode of the MMA Conspiracy Hour with Miguel Iterati, who was the uh, matchmaker for Bodog Fight, Euphoria, Hook and Shoot. Um, you know, he's been around for a long time. He was also involved in the early days of a Abu Dhabi tournament. And uh, so this is uh, the UFC-WWE merger already happened, you know, around September 12th. And uh, I hadn't pushed this episode out, but we talked about it pretty soon after. And what it could mean for the UFC, but also for Dana White, for someone who, uh, you know, has people that could impact his decisions or people that are even over him. Now that you have some board members and Vince McMahon and whatnot. So I thought Miguel had some interesting insight into that. And as always, I want you guys to check out my sponsor, Live to Fight Design. You can find them on Instagram at live, the number two, fight, design. And uh, if you use my promo code, which is my name, Todd Atkins, you can get $20 off your order for a fight banner or gym banner. And uh, as always, I appreciate your support and listen to these episodes. And uh, if you enjoy them, just uh, share it with somebody else. Tell somebody else to check it out. I appreciate it. And as always, take care. It says Todd Atkins. I'm back with Miguel Adorati, MMA Conspiracy Hour. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this final kind of finalization of the WWE-UFC merger and some of the stuff that came out, maybe more details that came out this time than the previous uh, announcement. And before we start, as always, we want to talk about Live to Fight Design. Uh, they're our sponsor. You can find them at uh, on Instagram at Live to Fight Design. And they make fight banners and gym banners. And if you use my promo code, you can get $20 off your order. And Miguel, I kind of wanted to give you kind of like an opening statement, maybe like an overall of what you thought of some of the stuff that came out from these new announcements of the merger. You know, the, Dana being Dana is, is the number one thing, you know, is he's taking pot shots at people. You got the big press release and some lawyer put out you know, they, they wanted every fan of the WWE to be a UFC fan and, and vice versa in the future. And uh, Dana comes out and craps all over it. And here's the point is, it's a $15 billion company. Dana's now got a few people in the room that he kind of has to pay attention to. This is something Dana's never had to deal with in the UFC. There's never been anybody that could tell Dana what to do. In the UFC. Maybe the Vertinas behind closed doors, but they gave him very much carte blanche. And never stepped in or never had a, you know, on the other side of the coin, Vince McMahon has, you know, exerted his power with the wrestlers over and over again, different than Dana. Dana has never had to, never had any type of, uh, you know, uh, any assault on his position in the company or any reason to take it. Dana is convinced that nobody knows more about fighting than Dana. So nobody can tell him what to do. And if he continues to do that, he may find out or it could possibly play out this way. Maybe Dana's, you know, overwhelms everybody in the room again. But now he's in there with a different kind of animal. And some of these lawyers and some of these creative people and things that really don't know much about fighting are what you need to get to that next level, which I, I don't know. What, what Can they get to be a $100 billion company? Can they get to be a, like Apple, a trillion dollar company? You, you know, in, in 20 in 20 years, 
you know, you have to ask yourself that if those are the corporate goals, then, you know, it's a whole different ballgame. And Dana's going to have peers, one of them being Vince McMahon. Yeah, that's something I wanted to ask you about, because they said Vince is going to have veto power, even in UFC decisions. Do you think he's going to act on any of that? I don't think that Vince, I, I think in the room, in the room, when they're making decisions of this level, if Dana and Vince are there, I think that they will more often than not be on the same side. I just said that nobody knows more about fighting than Dana. Well, clearly nobody knows more about pro wrestling than Vince. So in that respect, as like say the subject matter experts of the whole things, they are in the strongest position right now. They're going to get what they want. There's already been the slight crossover. You haven't seen the logos. You haven't seen any of that, but there's already been the slight crossover of the WWE using, you know, mixed fight rules for the Ronda Rousey, Shayna Baszler uh, uh, rivalry that's going on now. No brainer since, you know, Ronda is there and Shayna is a veteran of, you know, more than 30 MMA fights. So, um, that was a normal, natural first step, but it was a baby step. This was clearly a baby step for what's cut. And I think the press release was a good measure that we are going to feel it at some point. You know, will WrestleMania, uh, uh, things they could do over the years at this level. WrestleMania is the granddaddy of, of the WWE and they compare it to the Super Bowl. The UFC will say that their shows are the same, but they don't have the careful uh, like isolation of WrestleMania as a hallowed event in, in the UFC. There isn't a single like end-of-the-year event or anything like that that everybody looks forward to every year. WrestleMania has that position. So you get, you know, one of the biggest, the Dallas Stadium, 80,000 people, and you do back-to-back -back nights with the UFC with John Jones defending against whoever the next character is, you know, or, and, and put a couple of title fights on there, make it the biggest show ever. And then the next day they hit with WrestleMania. Now, a few years down the line, this is the kind of thing that they could do. Put WrestleMania on first and then and give the UFC that second position and make a huge deal about it. And that way the company's just growing and growing. Will the WWE catch them again? Does this sound familiar? Didn't they have... Raw and uh, another channel that they, they did, they split them up on two channels. One was the red team, one was the blue team in WWE. They're going to do that to grow and grow and grow. That's what I see. So, yeah, things like that that are, they seem, that seems simple, right? It's like, oh, yeah, of course they could do that. Or, you know, but it's going to, it takes years to get to a position where you can book an 80,000 seat stadium two nights in a row. But now you're looking at something very few entertainment companies can say that they, you know, successfully are going to do two major live pro promotions like that, back-to-back -back nights. They're setting a standard that takes them. And I think that this may be used as an argument in the lawsuit, that they're not just a fight company. They're an entertainment company. Look at all that goes into this. And, and sh you know, show some... Let, let the accountants fight it out over what the real expenditures are. But the, 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 do they spend a lot of money on productions and things? Um, yeah. And I think that's only going to go over the top. And again, that will allow them to claim 
you know, if the fighters want, they can go to fight in Bellator. They can go fight in PFC and stuff. We are not even on that ball game. There you have to fight on their TV station. We can give you fights every week. Because what we've created is a fighting empire. And like I said, I would not be surprised if within the next three years, there was a huge purchase of a boxing component to this company. By, by for example, Bob Aaron. Dana, I saw him in the news stating he hates Bob Aaron. Why does he hate Bob Aaron so much? Bob Aaron's Tyson Fury's promoter. Is that enough reason? Or maybe Bob is standing in the way of selling his billion-dollar boxing empire. Bob's video library includes the Thrill in Manila, the Rumble in the Jungle. Bob put those on. So, you know, Bob is another guy, like Vince, where Dana can be a bull in the China ship in the China shop all he wants, but he's out experienced by Vince and he's out experienced by Bob Arum. And maybe that's what chafes him about, you know, Bob. But uh, if, if they added that, like if Bob passed away and that corporation, whatever was left there, became a part of this and was sucked up by Endeavor, then again, that idea that they are a complete entertainment, sports, combat thing that goes beyond the little leagues that are operating out there, um, you know, becomes more feasible. It actually becomes a defense for their behavior on the selling points too. So I, I that could be what they're heading for. That's why I'd like a chance at that lawyer we had again, because this, this uh, announcement shows me that the UFC and the WWE and the people in the room that say, okay, that's the strategy. Are we going to, uh, are we signing off on this and making it public? Once they said yes, it, it must mean they're making an assessment that they're going to be okay with the lawsuit. Yeah. Other thing is, you got 11 board members. You know, at some point, they're going to meddle a little bit, I would think. And knowing Dana White, how hard is that going yeah, to they be? Dana, Dana doesn't play well with others, it seems. You know, I think that's a good assessment of his history that he doesn't look much for help either. You know, I mean, behind the scenes, you know, cutting deals to be on TV and stuff, you make your allies and stuff. But Dana is very uh, aggressive and forceful. And that worked for him with the UFC, again, because there was nobody there really that had the year of the Fertitas who could also go to them and say, wait, there's another way to do this, and you have to deal with that. The Fertitas gave him carte blanche and let him do what he did. And for 20 years, they, you know, the money came in, so nobody's challenged him. Now he's going to be challenged in ways that you can't just crap on everybody. The example that's in the uh, in the news is or in the press release with the lawyer, you know? Yeah. Um, Lawrence Epstein, yeah. Yeah, at, at the end of the day, what that lawyer is uh, the, what the lawyer said was done, but again, that, that was a good spot for Dana to shut up. Yeah. That was a good spot to not say anything and not crap on that guy because he's a teammate of yours, is, is, is what you want to present to everybody. A very strong, united front. Everybody's not, you're not calling people dummies in public, but that's the day that's still the old Dana. Dana always did that. Can he get away with it now? It's like, like he should feel like. The UFC obviously 
you know, he's a success. I mean, there's no way that you're going to take away that kind of thing. But he should definitely feel like he just went from junior high school to high school. And now you're in there with the high school kids and you're not the best athlete maybe. You're not the richest in the room anymore. Other people have other, you know, the level of legal knowledge in some of the lawyers and, and, and gravitas that they're going to put on contracts and things like that. It all may be at a, at a level now that, that you have to listen. And Dan's not a great listener. So we'll see how it goes. I don't think they can get rid of him, but I think that, you know, if he wants to be counterproductive, like there was no reason to, to make Epstein look bad in the news, except for Dana wanted to exert some type of ego boost to himself there. Now, did he make an enemy of Epstein? Or is Epstein just another kind of whip dog? Yeah, and, you know, I would think, you know, when you have more people involved that have power, eventually they want to put their hands into the cookie jar to some extent. Some a lot, some a little bit. And when you got someone like Dana, you don't want their hand in there at all. So I think that could be an yeah. interesting dynamic down the road. Yeah, again, I think... If you look at it, and Dana's smart, the Fertitas are smart. I think that Dana's protected by his contract. That he run makes all fight related decisions, period. The, the more simple the contract that language is, the more power he has. So, you know, um he can do what he wants, like he can make people look bad and stuff like that, but then yeah. Over the long course, you know, very few people, nobody, nobody ever, ever really contradicted Dana. And if they had, they didn't last long. But he could be in a board meeting three to five years from now with Epstein and maybe the tables have turned. Very similar to the image I said of them switching the UFC and WrestleMania position just for the show of it. Maybe Epstein's raised his profile enough in three to five years that, you know, he remembers this, or maybe, like I said, he's just kind of one of Dana's, you know, underlings, and he's he's now been whipped again in public. No, but I mean, even if you're making all decisions, when you have more people involved, like I said, eleven board members, and you have Vince, you have more voices who are saying, yeah, maybe, maybe we should try this, and, maybe and we should try that, and that's going to irritate him, even if he's making all the decisions. To me, it's, it's you bring up a fascinating point because nothing in Dana. So what happens is at some point, if you're going to charge and you're going to get your way, you've got to be really active in there, including listening to other people's ideas, weighing them, coming back with a counter argument if that's not the way to go, so that you're managing people. You don't, you can't just, you know, that's the dumbest idea I ever heard. Get out of here. To High level people, they don't they like a little more respect as well. So yeah, that, that managing of interpersonal relationships, I don't give Dana a lot of that. You we may have found his weak spot. You know, he hasn't needed to do it. And now he's gonna looks like he's gonna be forced to do it. And many of the signs that we see in public of of him, including, you know, his kind of laissez-faire attitude that he's had these last, you know, many months or whatever, even maybe longer, you know, are attributed to this. Yeah. 
now the crossover thing i was looking in here that they have a plan well this is what epstein was talking about of maybe having more and here's what i'm talking about voices already you know having more ufc fighters crossover into wwe after their runs are over so there's an example of the voices already you know that's not dana's idea but somebody who yeah. feels like they have enough voice to make a public statement in this story that's put out. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and you know, here's the thing is, I think it could be, like, the whole thing is, like, what is Vince going to bring? Well, they bring WrestleMania, they bring history, library, but they also bring a pedigree that when you go back to the 50s, and, and the, the wrestlers that trained the guys that were stars in the 50s, those guys were in the discussions of toughest man in the world. You know, the pro wrestler, if you could, if the wrestlers could grab a boxer, they would that they, they would were they were gonna win. Many of these wrestlers tried boxing. The stories of uh the last name is Hackenschmidt. This is a guy from the turn of the 19th century to the 20th century. And uh, he actually did boxing matches under fake names because nobody, when they heard his name and his reputation from a wrestler, nobody wanted to deal with him. The famous trainer, William Muldoon, who uh, trained John L. Sullivan for his final bare-knuckle world championship fight in the 1870s, he was a wrestler from that era. And they used to have wrestling on Wednesdays in bars in New York, the Five Points, that movie, you know, um, with Daniel Day-Lewis, that's so interesting you know and well developed but imagine the wrestlers and boxers from that era those are men of a different breed and william Muldoon went on to be the first commissioner of boxing in new york state even the guys in pride like carl gotch soccer and billy robinson and those guys, yeah absolutely the, the wrestlers have such an influence in this that yes when it, when in the 80s when we found ourselves kind of lost with combat and in an experimental phase, the Japanese were way ahead. The branch that Carl Gotch and the wrestlers have were way ahead in the development of that in the 80s, whereas the UFC only appeared in 93 in the States. So don't get me wrong. The, the, the WWE has a lot to benefit from this kind of refreshing retie to what is real fighting. Because at the end of the day... Um, you know, if it keeps going the way it is, the acrobatics and things are obviously, you know, over the top now. And that is a position at some point, but it could also be a phase that goes away for a little while. And there's a refreshing to go back to more of the basics. I know that that doesn't sound great, but there's a lot of refreshing. So, so here's how this idea could work that this guy made in the press release. I look at wrestling now and I look at wrestling when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, we had Captain Lou Albano. We had classy Freddie Blassie. We had the grand wizard of wrestling. Later on, you had Slick. There were managers, these figures that bought in fighters. You know, I remember Lou Albano saying, I went to Samoa and came back with these guys and the Samoans are there. That manager figure is gone. They have Paul Heyman there, who's phenomenal, and he's like Brock Lesnar's handler. And, and you know, but the idea of managers and competitive managers and things, that's something that could return to WWE. And how would Conor McGregor look as a manager? 
Yeah. You know, Kyler doesn't need the job, but when you're talking about a, a, a guy who's shown the charisma and could add to the to the storyline over there, there's a good example of a guy that would lift the whole thing up for many people. Imagine yeah. where he doesn't he only has to fight like and be sneaky because he's smaller. You don't need him in the ring much, although you know, maybe you'll want to blow up and get in there at some point. But I think you know. Just exactly like he is, bombastic with the suits and with all the, the the money, and we have the best team and that whole thing. Bring him in, and then bring up you know some other competitors, some good guys, some bad guys, and things. It's a whole aspect of wrestling. I don't want to say it's lost, but it's dormant. Yeah. So a lot of guys like that could cross over, and then obviously for the heavyweights, look if they're healthy. And they are still wanting to compete, and they can get into a situation where this is, you know, something sophisticated. We know that Ronda and Brock Lesnar have these kind of cherry deals with the WWE, where they don't have to go on the road and do the 200 fights in a year schedule that most of the other people did. But if the WWE were to take older MMA fighters, because they've already maybe have some fame established, maybe they can ease them in with contracts like this and make rare appearances. As long as it builds a story, the, Vince will take somebody from anywhere. They've had everybody from Snoop Dogg to Logan Paul to Shaquille O'Neal to Floyd Mayweather to Mike Tyson to back in the day, Mr. T. Many rappers, country singers, Whatever the flavor of the day is, have been involved in the WWE because it makes the show bigger. And I think that's one of the things that Vince is, is sitting here going like this, eager to do. And that's why he needs that veto power, because if they want to come and go, look, we want to present to you, and I mean this with utter respect, but we want to present Fabrizio we're done. It's like Vince might say, how's his mic work? It's like, well, okay, you know, Fabrizio's maybe a bad example, but his English isn't going to be WWE type of English. They'd have to come up with a character. They'd have to do a lot of work. But these are moldable guys. I think it's not for everybody. I think some guys will thrive on that. And some guy, and it's an avenue for guys to, um, you know, extend their careers, extend their money-making years. You know, you're talking about guys that, by the time they're 40, their best money-making years are over in most cases. If the you know the, if their fight career peaked and they made their money, they're not going to make that level of money when they're 53. This is an opportunity for them to have more income. There's nothing wrong with that. Presented right. The WWE always, with their storylines and their creative, you know, you may like it or hate it, but they're meticulous. So I don't think that they're going to rush into things and I think it could be done well. The managers, like I said, would a guy, a guy like McGregor would make a great manager because of his mic control, you know. And he could he could be a mic a guy who would take bumps, you know. So it has amazing potential. One thing that I found interesting in this story is the UFC's petition when they filed the appeal. They actually conceded here that their they conceded that the fighters did not receive um, equivalent money to their growth and revenue in the appeal. What do you think about that? 
you know, I that's where I would like to be able to question the lawyer again. But off the top of my head, I would think that that might be a, a, a like a, a straw being put out to see if, if there's some type of deal that can be made. You know, um, so they can see that at some point somebody sits down with a calculator and say, this is what the figure is. This is about how much you should have spent on that. And then they take that and divide it up. But again, the rest of the peccadillos and, and worse that are in the lawsuit that are, you know, such as changing your business practices, you know, would be something... The moment the lawyers say it's like the, then the UFC says, okay, so we underpaid and it's going to cost us five billion. Okay. And that's probably a big number, but say two billion. Where do we pay? Wait, wait, but you got to change your business practices. Do you want the money or not? That's the UFC's answer. That's what that is. So that's just legal play, I think. You know, um, it, it's just so they'll put a dollar figure on what that is. And whatever that dollar figure is, is, the UFC will be working to drive it down through books. You know, we spent on this and this and this, and nobody thinks about this and things. And and maybe hiding income streams, you know? So we'll see. Like I said, like I, I, I firmly believe that the initial intent of the UFC by Fertitta, the Fertitta brothers coming in, keep in mind they're a casino. So they are the house. And they always say the house wins, right? They wanted a new sport to take more money into the casinos. And lo and behold, there's a lot of gambling now going on on these fights. And the house always wins. So they've got a steady, they've created a steady income where there was none before. And, and that income from betting is some of the hardest to track. And not to mention, did, has Dana done any inside betting? You know, I didn't, I've never heard that, but he likes to bet. And, you know, was there a point early in his career where, you know, he, he knew he had a hunch Chuck was going to beat Tito. He was in the gym with them. He kind of had that one read real good and maybe made some money that way. I don't know. He's got to have a billion dollars in there, you know, at this point. So, but again, the edginess of all that stuff, that income is the, is the one that blew up as well. Is, is, does that income that the Fertitas get, is that something that the fighters should be, compensated for i don't know i i don't know but that's what i would like to ask the lawyer because that's a good that's i think the main reason but if you don't include the gambling money they make still the pay-per-views the this the t-shirts the marketing everything like that they're going to come up with a dollar figure and if the lawsuit bites it um they may not try to change the business practices that's what they're that's what they're going to try to do it says here that the fighters made an estimated just 13% of the revenue. Okay, so what is the right number? Is it 50-50? I don't know. Yeah, the NBA, NFL, the, it, yeah, it's closer to that, I guess, yeah. And, I, and, and they've gotten it so refined in some of those leagues. I'm not sure which one of these details come from, but just memory from the past. Um, you know, every six years, there's another bargaining agreement that they go through and things. And they've got those percentages down so fine that sometimes it's like, well, they're going to get 51%, 52%. They're moving it up one at a time now, 13 to 50. No joke. No joke. But that's what the NFL, NBA, NFL, they're at that standard of giving 50% to the fighters. And that's why you see 
so, you know, fighters, the, the athletes. That's why you see, you know, some athletes, you know, LeBron James is getting a huge piece of the pie there, right? But there is a pie there that's much bigger. So what that would mean is the elite of the elite that John Jones, John Jones could be a hundred million dollar person. And yeah. I want to ask you a little bit more about the, uh, you know, like the, the shows on the same weekend kind of thing. How much of a, I mean, I know you touched on a little bit, but how much of an impact or how much of a growth do you think that would have on the two products? You know, the thing about both companies is that they've shown a capacity to continue growth. You know, the MMA, you kind of got the feeling that there was going to be an ebb and flow and like, you know, but they've really managed to come back with new peaks, you know, one way or another. And the WWE, the same. So I, I kind of feel like um, that's the way it's going to go. That's you're just going to keep getting bigger. How could it get bigger? So on, what happens is this, is um, you got to find the right places. D Dallas, the stadium is perfect. And, and then they got to have the hotels, the packages, the typical mafia behavior. Get, get the entire thing, create an event for a week or at least, you know, a four-day weekend where people come and now you're able to get to that Disneyland effect where it's like, well, you know, this weekend everybody's going to pay $22 for Cokes. But the people don't stop going to the Super Bowl. So, But I think that that's the next level is that the prices for the events and the prices for some of those things, you'll see the prices for the pay-per-views if they continue to use that, that medium of, of distribution will all go up. If they can get any higher. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that's the thing is, is they, they, they know they'll have to offer more. But what would you pay for a front row seat at, at you know, WWE, say, Mega Fight 1, Mega Fight 2, Mega, and they do a, a April event with WrestleMania, wherever that is. They... Both companies, because WrestleMania has done 80,000-seat stadiums, but then they always, they've taken it back, too, back to the 20,000-seaters. Never go back to the 20,000-seaters with the weekend. Present a carnival type of atmosphere where everything is taken care of. And, yeah, you'll see the prices go up, and you'll see that um, it'll be less common people that are able to afford it, and it'll be more of an elite crowd. And that's kind of the way, you know, those things are going to go, where it's like, you know, you, you see every chance the UFC gets, and the WWE, but every chance the UFC gets, they show celebrities in the crowd and things like that. And that's what you're going to see more of, you know, just that the crowd is going to be uh, you know, with more spending power than the average crowd now. And it's a pretty high spending power crowd right now. Yeah. You know, males 25 to 50, there's a lot of money there in, in, in uh, across the board. So, but um, there is still 
fighting and stuff, there's still like a blue collar aspect to people and things like that, where it's like golf is all of that type of elite. And I don't think they mind that type of jump if, you know, they bring a few. The thing is, with population growth, there's also more people, more spending money, more people out there. You know, this happened in boxing at the turn of the century, too. You know, at the 1900s, you already had in the cities, New York, for example, um, office workers. And these were usually white men and, that wore the ties, and but they were already ties and suits and going, you know, to be a stockbroker or an accountant or this. There was already a middle class. And it was those guys that Jack Dempsey's fighting in Utah or, you know, Joe Gans is fighting in Utah. I'm going to take a week off. I'm going to train out there and go you know, by train and go see the fight and come back. And that's how boxing started to grow because the they could go out west where they could do the fights they wanted to, and the people had the money. Money was available for them to actually go, go continue to, to root for the fights. It was nothing like seeing a live fight in 1900 because there was no TV. There was none of that stuff where you were actually going to see it. If, if you didn't see it, you had to read about it. So they grew a group of middle upper middle class people, fans, that had the money to do the whole trip. And guess who the promoter would rent special trains to bring people out there and grab some of the money, you know. That's what the UFC is going to do. Fly in on the Fertitta's jet and woo-woo, be a first-class, you know, VIP member of a big fight weekend and pay 10000 bucks a head. Just, there's guys out there that'll do it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see um, what's going to happen. What do you think about Valentina versus uh, Grasso this weekend? I think it's – well, I wonder what the odds are. I haven't looked. But um, I think it's – you know, I think Shevchenko is an exceptional fighter. Um, and skill-wise and precision-wise – you know, she even has some advantages over Amanda. Amanda's bigger and Amanda's beaten her, so there's no reason to beat a horse. But I think you're talking about an exceptional fighter and underappreciated. Speaks a few languages. Um, the UFC could put her, you know, on a higher pedestal, I think. Um, which is what makes the Grasso win so notable. You know, uh, and, and Grasso... Um, you know, one of the last MMA fights I promoted here in Central America was with her uncle, and, and he's one of her trainers. And um, so she comes kind of from a fighting family and real good people. And uh, I I have a tendency to root for Grasso because of that relationship. But I'm not sure that Shevchenko, if she can re if she can get her mind together. And she's always been strong mentally. But if she can get her mind together and be focused on, like, I just lost my title. I'm not good with that. Grasso's going to have a hard time getting the repeat. But you never know. Well, I mean, do you think we do you think we saw a dip in um, Shevchenko or no? No, I think I think I think you saw Grasso come through with a, a performance that you know is for the ages. But is she a Jim Braddock? I, you know, and I don't mean to discredit, but I, I do need to see a little more. Like Jim Bragg beat Sugar Ray, and then you know that was the end of it. Did she just did she just beat 
an all-time good, great fighter. And is she going to lose the rematch? Now, sealing the deal is very important for Grasso and would elevate Grasso a great deal. But she does need to seal the deal because if she loses here, then, you know, they'll eventually do the rematch again and then we'll know. But I think Grasso right now is in the strong position where to win against Shevchenko, then firmly she's the top dog at 125. I don't know that Shevchenko wouldn't argue that she's still top dog even despite the loss. So that that's what looks to be resolved here. I think it's... It, Think it's an exceptional fight. I think it's actually perhaps more exciting to me than uh, Nunez or what whatever was going on at the top of the uh, 135 pound division uh, the last couple of years. I think that's a great thing to end on, and it should be an interesting rematch. And uh, yeah, I wanna, as always, I want to give you a chance to talk about the you know the uh, wet nose project. We always kind of close on that. Cool. Yeah. Well. Uh, this weekend, I'm going to take a bunch of volunteers out. It's Independence Day here. So starting tomorrow is, you know, activities and people are off work and stuff. So I'm going to take a group of individuals from, uh, you know, that are volunteers from the area here and just do some money collection. Take some of the dogs down to the park down there, some of the more social dogs, and uh, just kind of try to make a presence that, see what what people think i think um it's a good country where people rally around the animals as well it's just making a present so you know, try something new and have some fun get out in the air it's beautiful here so yeah, and there's always uh, people will put some uh in the show notes uh go find me there if you guys want to contribute to this project in Costa Rica. Yeah, i'm sorry i i i'm supposed to be making videos but the bottom line is is that there's a lot of other things to do and videos, you know, I can tape. If I'm the camera guy, then who's doing the talking and things? So I, I just want to do them right. And hopefully, you know, it's, it's a good long-term project. I'm going to be doing this anyway. So um, we're having fun. But we'll have more videos and things out there for people to see of, of the actual work being done because, you know, some of it's a lot of um, emotions in them. So it's good stuff. Yeah, as always, Miguel, it's uh, good stuff here. Wait, let's be close. We can close with this, right? Wow. You, you sent me an article about Dana White in public making a statement how he felt nothing when his parents died. Mm -hmm. For the fans out there, ask yourself, would Dana White rescue a dog? <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that was a sad statement, man. I mean, I know there's some people like that, but you know, Here's for example, I worked at a shelter for kids that were removed from the house, you know, by DHS. These mm -hmm. kids were abused, neglected. They all loved their parents, all of them. You know yeah. what I mean? And here's yeah, a guy who doesn't even care that his parents died. It's crazy. Yeah. No, we, I think, you know, I think he's a person that, um, you know, nobody ever really took a look at exactly how he ticks. And some of the stuff signs you see now, like, you know, you wonder how his run lasted so long, you know. And so we'll see. I, I thought that was kind of a sad statement. And that's another good example. We can close on this for your so we don't keep rambling. But, you know, earlier on in the podcast, I said, 
They just should have kept his mouth shut instead mm -hmm. of raping the lawyer. Here's another example. If that's how you really feel, keep your mouth shut, you lizard. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's like nobody wants to hear that you're a freaking evil person that doesn't feel anything. Yeah. But that's what he reveals. And again, nobody says what I say, but it's like he's a guy who's once he's in the room he, and yeah, he might have a billion dollars. He might be moving the thing forward. He might be able to cut off this, that, and the other thing. But then when you start getting to know that that way about his parents and stuff, most people will be like, yeah, you know, enough, buddy. Enough, buddies. That's a bad sign. So we'll see. Yeah, but I don't more think. More than the day this year. If he's looking for sympathy, I don't think that's the right way to go about it. Because I think more people will probably think, man, what, why would you say something like that about your parents? Yeah, you no. Know? His parents are probably, uh, you know, if they're good, if they're normal parents, despite him being vile and evil, his parents are probably wherever they go trying to make an excuse for them to let Dana in when they when he gets there. <laughs> That's if you believe in the afterlife and all that sort of stuff, a little fantasy there. But the point is, is yeah, Dana's a lizard. That's all there is to it. Yeah. Now, I know him and his mom went back and forth because we saw that, you know, when Jerry Millen <laughs> flew her out to his house and interviewed her. But, you know, yeah, I just understand you know, that they had their differences. But even she... You know, wanted to reconcile with him. You know, but yeah, and that's the point is, is is mom. It's a mom. You know what I mean. Everybody has a mom, but those relationships are. You know, when when you get sad when you hear it's like, yeah, I'm estranged from my family. You know, I don't talk to my family. I can't. You know, all those things are not. You know, they happen, but most people don't put them out there. You know what I mean? And Dana just in public say, he feels he can say anything, including, you know, stuff like this. It's like, why say that in public? Why what, does that have to be known about you? And what better, what, what good does it do? Do people think it's like, wow, he's so cool. I wish I wasn't burdened by emotions like that. You know, that's not going to be the general reaction to that. So why do you need to say it? Because of his ego. So shut up, Dana. Yeah, it, 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 I thought it made him look bad you know and to say oh i moved my dad out to maine so he could you know live out his final years with his family that's your father you know you didn't care yeah. you know it's come on you know it, it, it sounds like he's accounting there you know accounting in his head it's like all right i spent you know on his house and this that so he's spending money and stuff he's got it it still doesn't show like human emotion, like, you know, yeah. like I care. Like, I'll give a little, if there's anybody out there that is still listening to us, here's a little bit of MMA news that goes along down this part and pulls my heartstrings, is um, uh, long-time hook-and-shoot referee, and, uh, you know, he also refereed the Kimbo fight with Petrozelli, the Kimbo fight with some of those people, Troy Waugh. Uh, went into brain surgery uh, to have a tumor removed at 11 in the morning. And, um, you know, we're waiting to hear. So this is a second time and it was kind of rushed. So we're all hoping to hang on. And I'm sorry to say I'm not like Dana and I feel this one. This is my buddy. Uh, you know, we started together in MMA in the 90s. And, uh, you know, we rode together a, a lot. And uh, he's also a person in the MMA history. And the, sorry, the people listening here will remember Troy as a ref, especially if you look up the names. So uh, somebody to keep in your thoughts. 
you know, he may be with us, he may not be with us uh, by the time you hear this. So, God bless him. With recovery, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, everyone that listened to the show, uh, you know, as always, thank for the support. And uh, until next time, uh, take care. Yes, sir. I want to thank everyone for taking time to listen to this latest episode. And uh, new update, I have a merch shop, which is on Fourth Wall. It's Todd Atkinshow dash shop dot fourth wall dot com. And uh, I'll include it in the uh, show notes. So you, if you, I know that's kind of long, but if you want to just cut and paste it or if you want to check it out, um, Fourth Wall give me an ability to make a lot of different uh, products and stuff. And uh, I have some simplified designs there. So if you're interested in uh, checking out some merchandise, you know, I'd appreciate that. And, uh, you know, as always, as I said before, if you like the show, just share it with somebody. You know, and uh, maybe subscribe to the show as well. You know, and uh, and uh, check out my YouTube. I always talk about my YouTube, Todd Atkins Show. Um, I, I've released most of the episodes there earlier than I do here. Um, so if you want to kind of catch them early, that's where you'd find them. So uh, as always, I appreciate your support. Anyone listening to the episode. And uh, I got about four or five more I'm going to update here.